Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we've started during this work from home period and are going to continue indefinitely, even after hopefully we get back to normal here sometime soon. And what they are, they're interviews and conversations with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do with the SALT Talk series is to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And today we're very excited to welcome David Dayen uh, to SALT Talks. David is the executive editor of the American Prospect, which is a daily online and quarterly print American political and public policy magazine dedicated primarily to American liberalism and progressivism. He's also an acclaimed author, his most recent book being uh, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power, uh, which was released in July. Uh, Monopolized is a riveting account of what it means to live in this new age of monopoly and how we might resist this corporate hegemony. David's work has appeared in The Intercept, The New Republic, HuffPost, The Washington Post, The LA Times, and many more outlets. His first book uh, called Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, uh, was the winner of the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize, which was, and it was released by the New Press in 2016. If you have any questions for David during today's talk, a reminder, please post them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And conducting today's interview will be Anthony Scaramucci, who I know read David's book and was fascinated by it. Uh, Anthony is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. And he's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Hey, John, thank you. And uh, David, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to our invitation. I thought the book was fascinating. We'll We'll get into the book in a second. I'm old enough to remember Studs Terkel and his living history stuff. So that's a <laughs> that's an amazing award for you. God bless. Uh, before we get into the book, though, tell us how you got to where you are. Why did you become a writer? Uh, wh wh when did the light bulb go off in your brain that you were going to have this sort of a career? Yeah, it, I kind of came in through the side door. I was I was working in television. Uh, uh, doing a, a lot of lot of shows uh, up on the top of the digital tier of uh, of, of those uh, those networks, and uh, learned about a thing called political blogging. Uh, this was back in two thousand two, two thousand three, uh, when if you got involved in that, you were part of a, a pretty small group, and you could advance pretty quickly. And so uh, I started a blog in two thousand four, I believe. Uh, and sort of advanced on the on uh, the liberal side of the spectrum, and uh, that gave me more opportunities, more opportunities. And I was still uh, working in television, but sort of doing this on the side. And then I was sort of doing this and working in television on the side. And uh, eventually, it became uh, clear to me that this is what I wanted to pursue. And uh, was really fortunate in my career to to uh, be able to write these books and and become the executive editor of the prospect and uh it's it's uh, served me well so i mean it's interesting you say the the liberal side and so what i find fascinating about the busting of monopolies is that it used to be a conservative idea i think we both know that i mean it it, it generated out of the idea that there was too much power at the top and you needed to create more of a free enterprise system by shaking the power at the top and unleashing all of that innovation. So, 
So, so take us through why it's no longer a conservative idea. What, what, what do you think happened, David? Well, I don't know that it's not at the ground level. So, I mean, I talked to people uh, in this book who are libertarians. I talked to people who were Trump Republicans uh, who see this problem of concentrated corporate power very directly. I, I talked to one woman uh, who is a, a big Trump supporter, uh, and uh, she was in a home uh, uh, that was purchased by Blackstone. And, and, and I said, well, you know that Stephen Schwartzman is also a big Trump supporter. You're saying that Blackstone is the source of your problems. She said, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm trying to write to him and I'm trying to figure that out. But I explained to her that Teddy Roosevelt uh, was really the initial trust buster. And she said, well, I guess I'm a Roosevelt Republican then. Uh, so I think there, there is a consensus, left, right, center, whatever, uh, if you talk to people in, about their daily lives, that something is wrong, that the economy is rigged in some way, that these large interests are having a, a, a major effect on their lives uh, in ways that maybe they can't talk about it as monopolies or antitrust, but they know that, that there, is, there is this level of corporate power that is influencing what they do, what they say, and what they are able to do uh, in, in major ways. Uh, at the top, uh, that's an interesting question, why uh, monopoly has moved sort of and shifted from the left to the right in the, in the political sphere, uh, in, in the halls of power. Um, you know, we, uh, there still is a little bit of residual bipartisanship there. We had a, we had a hearing in the House Antitrust Subcommittee with uh, the CEOs of Amazon and Google and Apple and Facebook. And uh, there were piercing questions from both sides of the aisle uh, on the, the level of power that these large tech companies have. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, uh, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is that, that we can see this beyond left and right, and we can see this as a, as a problem that affects all of us. So explain, explain to the lay people and some of the younger people that listen to these SALT talks why it would be important, the concept from an economic perspective of breaking up a large corporation. What are the benefits to that and why, why would we do that? And there are some people out there that say, well, the, the person was able to get the corporation to where it is. Uh, isn't it unfair that we're breaking it up? How do you respond to those well, I mean, we've had laws on the books for over 100 years that say that competition is uh, something that uh, is, 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 is something we want out of uh, the U.S. economy. Uh, and if we don't have it, we get a lot of residual problems. So uh, I, my, my view and what I write about in the book is that it goes beyond just sort of, oh, I only have one cable company and so they charge me more. Uh, it, it goes well beyond that. Uh, co uh, concentration uh, is a quality problem because if you have nowhere else but one service provider, they have no incentive to give you a quality product. Uh, concentration creates hidden risk in the economy uh, where uh, disruptions in supply chains, for example, magnify uh, when there's only one supplier. We've seen this during the pandemic with uh, respect to uh, uh, supplies for medical use like uh, PPE. Uh, concentration creates not only personal inequality, but regional inequality, where you see these regions that have been left behind and these winner-take-all cities uh, that have popped up uh, and really created this, this abandonment of, of, of parts of middle, middle America uh, and and the, the wealth that was in these communities has been sucked out and is moving 
to these large corporations rather than staying within with small businesses and small enterprises. Um, uh, so on a variety of levels, I feel like uh, uh, it, we, we have a problem when we have smaller and smaller collections of smaller and smaller or bigger and bigger companies uh, uh, controlling too much of our, our economy. And innovation is another one. Uh, we see this in, in the tech sector where they have what is called a kill zone, where if you get uh, too prominent that your, your product is either copied by the big guys or you're bought out by the big guys. And then they take your, your innovation and they throw it away. So uh, that, that has a direct effect on, on the economy more generally. Um, we've seen startup business formation cut in half since the 1970s. So um, I, I, think, I think it goes beyond just sort of the consumer welfare concept uh, that, that largely is talked about in terms of price, which is the way that we sort of judge mergers today. Uh, it really goes into more and more uh, 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 larger issues around the economy uh, that we're seeing right now. And then in the book, I bring up a whole bunch of other issues that this touches on. So one of the great ironies, which you point out, which I love, is, is the breakup of AT&T. And fortunately, I'm old enough, David, you don't look old enough, but I'm old <laughs> enough to remember that breakup. I was 20 years old and we busted AT&T, uh, which is hard to believe now, controlled all of the wire telecommunications and was at the early onset of cellular communications and it controlled everything. We broke it up into seven companies. It unleashed this massive amount of innovation in the society uh, and allowed for international cables to be run and uh, satellites to be launched. And lo and behold, the companies that we're about to talk about are really the product of the breakup of that very big monopoly, AT&T, where now you have Google and Apple and Microsoft and all of these people have benefited from that innovation. So these large corporations are now dominating daily life. What would be your prescription if you were the monopolist czar <laughs> in the United States? What would be your prescription to make things better? And what do you think would happen from an innovation perspective if we followed your prescription? Well, I think it's absolutely true, as you mentioned. Uh, and it wasn't just the breakup of AT&T, but the Nightman uh, consent decree with AT&T, which said everything from Bell Labs needed to be compulsory licensed out to electronics firms that paid a, a fair rate. And that created the electronics industry in the United States, which, which has, has, has you know, created so much wealth for this country. Um, uh, and you see this recur over and well, over. Let me, let me just stop you for one second, because you point, what was happening is Bell Labs was creating and patenting all this great technology and they were sitting on it. Doing nothing with it. Yeah. Yes, because they were collecting very high economic rent from their, let's call it the copper wire business. Right. So the forcing of that uh, treasure trove of technology to be brought to the universe led to great advancement. Would that be fair to say? I mean, that's more or less correct. correct. Yeah, Bell Labs was one of the top R&D uh, facilities in the United States at that point, and allowing that uh, it, those innovations to actually be used uh, was was great for the country and great for the economy. Uh, we see this recur over and over again. IBM forced interoperability and, and splitting their software from their hardware. Uh, led to a software industry. Uh, the Microsoft trial, even though the remedy ended up being uh, uh, not, not completely uh, fully set out, uh, the trial itself uh, forced Microsoft back from uh, using uh, the same tactics they used to kill the Netscape browser to kill things like Google. 
And that led to Google being uh, 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 more and more uh, prominent. So uh, we see this sort of eternal recurrence in tech where uh, we, the government steps in to ensure that there isn't one company or a handful of companies that are too dominant, too controlling, and having too many deleterious effects on the rest of the country and the economy. And we can do that again. Uh, now, it doesn't have to be something as interventionist as a breakup. There is a distinction to be made between antitrust and anti-monopoly policy. So antitrust policy is really about mergers and breakups. Uh, maybe you say there's a moratorium on mergers from Apple, which buys a company almost every week, uh, or, or Facebook or Amazon or something like that. Or maybe you break up those companies into component parts. Uh, maybe Amazon Web Services gets cleaved off from Amazon.com, or maybe uh, Google's ad tech service uh, gets cleaved off from Google's search engine. Uh, but that's antitrust policy. You don't have to go there to uh, necessarily come up with things that would be beneficial. So uh, anti-monopoly policy could include things like structural separation, where you say, okay, if you're a business, we're not going to tell you how to do this, but uh, you cannot control a platform and also be competing with everybody else on that platform. So like Amazon controls the Amazon.com marketplace but also has its own brands that competes with companies on that marketplace and then takes all those companies' data and uses it to formulate its own business model. Uh, so you, you, can, you can say, we need to separate that structurally. We can have common carrier service uh, and interoperability where we say, okay, Facebook, uh, you have to allow people in a competing service to contact their friends that might only be on Facebook. Uh, and, and, and make that interoperable, as we did with, uh, with, with instant messaging, where you can, in, at any phone, you could do uh, an instant message to somebody. It wasn't just AOL instant messenger you had to use. So there are, and there are more, privacy laws and other regulations uh, that you could do. Uh, there are a whole host of them, and I think this antitrust subcommittee report that's going to be coming out in the fall is going to list a lot of these options um, uh, that you could do to really... Uh, create a situation where competition is allowed to flourish. You, 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 you mentioned. Uh, I, well, let me let me not put it in your words. Let me let you say it. But you talk about the middle class despair and the sawed-off ladders of prosperity. Mm -hmm. And so, how do growing monopolies create that anxiety in our country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are several chapters, I think, that speak to that. And one of the biggest ones is, is the agriculture chapter. So, uh, you know, you have family farmers that are really struggling to survive. They're put into open competition with concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs, uh, which are these giant feedlots that, 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 that you know, uh, have, have much more scale, tremendous scale than, than small family farmers. Family farmers cannot find uh, high prices for their products at processors who also own the feedlots that are competing against them. Uh, they uh, are, are forced into circumstances by these middlemen, these processing companies, big packers, uh, to uh, grow uh, and, and raise uh, livestock to exacting specifications uh, that might end up uh, uh, not panning out. Uh, they uh, only have one or two options for equipment. All the inputs have been costing more. All of their outputs have been paying less. Uh, and you have this tremendous uh, amount of uh, bankruptcies and, and, and closing up shop 
of family farms all over the country. And that has an effect on the communities that built up around those farms. So the hardware store and the grocery store in town uh, that used to be a, a vibrant main street is no more because the farms uh, are, are now all these sort of absentee operations uh, where, uh, uh, you know, in places like Iowa, which I went to and talked to a lot of farmers, um, these towns are basically dead. And, uh, you know, what do you do if that's where you come from? That's where your family is. That's where your community is. Uh, and, and suddenly it's dried up. And, and what does that create in a society? Well, uh, another set of monopolies, the pharmaceutical monopolies, uh, said, here's a salve for that. Here's, here's, why don't you take some Oxycontin and relieve your pain? Uh, and uh, that created a whole other set of problems and challenges for, uh, for those societies. So um, uh, the, the, the concept of regional inequality, this idea that uh, as uh, corporate America abandons these communities, as, uh, as, as, as the, the value and money that is, is used in, and, and circulated in these communities goes to monopolists rather than local businesses, uh, that that creates this, this trouble and despair all of its own. And it's a political problem too, because uh, you end up having uh, different parts of the country responding to different parts of politics and it creates a lot of the divisions that we see. And you, and you also mentioned that the farmers have twice the suicide rate of the veterans, and we know that we're losing uh, almost uh, 20 veterans a day. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. a very dairy, dairy thing. farmers, dairy companies are now putting in with their checks to dairy farmers uh, information about suicide hotlines and things like yeah. that. It's that stark. No, in, no, no, in it's it's it, it's super devastating. I, I, uh, before I turn it over to John Dorsey, who's dying to ask you some questions, and we've got great audience participation. Uh, the chapter that struck me the hardest, literally like a boulder hitting me in the head, was chapter seven, where you talk about our weapon systems, the defense industry, the fact that we can't do anything in our defense industry without the help of China because of the rare earth uh, minerals. But uh, you also bring up General Eisenhower, uh, then President Eisenhower, who was super concerned about the way we set up the military industrial complex. And I was wondering if you could offer some commentary on this and where do you think we're going from here and what could the United States do, if anything, to improve this process of defense procurement? Yeah, absolutely. There are two sort of separate issues going on there. You know, Eisenhower warned against having this concentrated sector that was tied directly to the military. And uh, in, in the next 20, 30 years, we proved him right by uh, creating uh, even more consolidation. This was a, a largely done under the Clinton administration, where they had this this very famous event called the Last Supper, uh, where uh, the heads of uh, a lot of the major defense manufacturers were brought into a room and told that they had to team up because there's just not going to be enough money after the Cold War has ended uh, for these uh, these these various manufacturers to get uh, the the money that they needed. So. Uh, you saw the, the, the winnowing down to about five major defense companies that are the prime uh, companies that uh, service the United States. And then, of course, 9-11 happens. And now these five companies control this massive amount of a, of a budget. The, the peace dividend did not pan out. So, uh, so there's that problem. The other problem is the fact that these companies, motivated by uh, Wall Street investors uh, in many ways, uh, have 
um, you know, sought a virtue in outsourcing their supply chains abroad. And so the manufacturing of, uh, and particularly the manufacturing of key elements of, there's a lot of defense manufacturing in the United States, but the key elements like rare earth minerals and like other chemicals, uh, a lot of them are only obtainable in China at the moment. Uh, that's not that's not destiny. We have the ability. There's a rare earth mine in, in California that has that is that has been shuttered. Uh, that's been there for years. Uh, but it's the way that uh, this has gone. And so now we're in a position. And the Defense Department knows about this. I mean, they've they've written reports. Uh, they know that certain weapon systems and products could only be done with the uh, assistance of China. And of course, this is an economic power, and we hope it doesn't become a military adversary to us as well. Uh, but if it does, uh, you know, this is a situation that's analogous to the Confederates and the Union. Uh, the Union was making all of the materials, and when, uh, the, 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 you know, at a certain point in the war, uh, when these materials were not flowing down to the Confederacy, uh, they they had the upper hand, and and that's what you would see in a potential uh, cold or, or God forbid hot war between the U.S. and China, and it's very dangerous. And 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 the military is aware of this, but uh, the way in which the uh, uh, very concentrated defense industry operates makes it hard to even you know to change that. I, I think one of the things that was fascinating about that chapter as well was I think it was uh, John Deutsch who who brought the defense contractors to the Pentagon and said, hey, just to give you a heads up, I don't know who's winning or losing here, but you guys are merging. We just don't have enough money to go around to feed all right. of you. Right. Uh, and, it, and then it caused that flurry of mergers. So, you know, we got a lot of, you know, we got a lot of interesting things going on at the same time. I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey. Uh, but before I go, David, I thought the book was fascinating. This is an all party book. This is a bipartisan book. And this is really about what you need to do to reframe growth and opportunity in a society. And you do point out, you lead the book with, uh, I think, from the ancient world. Let me go back to the front of the book. <laughs> right. I guess it was uh, Emperor Zeno uh, in 483 AD that was breaking up Monopoly. So let me yeah. hold the book up for everybody before we turn it over to John. But I have to tell you, I was fascinated by the book. You're on the right path here. And I do hope that more of our policymakers pick up the book and learn from it. And we have some work to do here in terms of re-energizing and re-engineering our society. But John Dorsey, go ahead. I know you're dying to ask questions, John. Always, okay. always. And by uh, the way, he has a better portrait of his ancestry. See, he has Coltrane behind him. You, you've got George Washington. I want you to know, I like, I like David's ancestors a lot better than your ancestors, Dorsey. I just thought I would point that out. All right. As normal, I'm going to no comment Anthony's uh, critiques <laughs> of my background. Um, David, how has the pandemic affected these monopolies and the monopolistic nature of our economy and the small the small businesses that are trying to compete with those monopolies? Well, I, it's accelerated it. And for, I, I want to thank Anthony for his kind words about the book. And I, I really was attempting to bring something together that wasn't left or right, that was really talking about people and how this issue affects their daily lives. So thank you for that. Um, but it's absolutely accelerated it. So uh, on a combination of factors, number one, obviously, uh, we have a, a lot of bankruptcies that are coming up uh, because of the pandemic. And uh, it's simply axiomatic that uh, bigger companies have more reserves to hold out for a longer period of time than smaller companies do. And, and we're seeing that uh, 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 play out over the last couple months. 
Uh, the second thing is the way in which Congress rescued the economy. Uh, they uh, gave a large amount of money to bolster the Federal Reserve, sort of whatever it takes policy, uh, including the purchase of corporate bonds, uh, which uh, are really only in the market if you're a large company. Uh, whereas the PPP, which was a small business lending fund, was time limited. It was eight weeks of payroll. Uh, and that has run out by now, long run out by now, and it was not enough to save a lot of those businesses. So just the nature of uh, congressional uh, rescue favors big companies over smaller companies. And then uh, the, the changing sort of uh, personal tastes and dynamics that are uh, sort of caused by the pandemic, online shopping, uh, working from home, things like we're doing right now, uh, all move towards, in particular, uh, certain tech incumbents that were already, you know, big at the time, things like Amazon, uh, Google tools, Microsoft tools, things like that, uh, uh, that helps them uh, increase their market share. I believe now uh, the, the, uh, the tech sector, the, the sort of the five biggest firms are something like 20% of the S&P 500 in terms of, mar in terms of value, uh, which is an incredible amount. We've never seen anything like that before. So, um, so yes, there is an absolute acceleration of, uh, of, of monopoly. And, and this is, of course, part of a 40-year trend, but it's now uh, increasing much, much more uh, as a result of the pandemic. So you talked about the CARES Act. This doesn't necessarily have as much to do with monopolies as it does with general government oversight, but you've been critical. I've seen you on social media uh, and in the media writing about uh, the lack of oversight in the CARES Act and some of the uh, corporate loans that have been given out. What is uh, most concerning to you about that process and the precedent that it sets? Well, the fact that we uh, are 151 days since we signed the CARES Act, and we still don't have a chair of the main oversight committee that Congress put together to monitor the Federal Reserve portions of, of the legislation. I mean, this is, this is astonishing that, that, that you know, uh, in a similar situation after the financial crisis, there was also a congressional oversight panel uh, that Elizabeth Warren ended up chairing. And days after that, that legislation passed, Elizabeth Warren was installed uh, as the chair of that panel. Uh, we are months, uh, five months away from, uh, from the passage of that legislation. We still don't have a chair of the panel that uh, has a perception effect where uh, the, the things, even though the, the panel with its, its remaining four members has um, uh, uh, issued reports and they did one hearing, but the fact that they don't have a chair uh, keeps it sort of onto the sidelines. It, it keeps it sort of off the pages, the front pages. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's it's, it's incredible to me that, that we would not, we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars potentially on the table in these large corporate bailouts, uh, both uh, corporate, and, and there are a variety of them, right? Corporate debt, uh, the airlines are getting specific grants. Uh, there's a municipal liquidity facility that could, uh, uh, right now it hasn't been used very much, but it could be used uh, to support state and local government. Uh, and all of this is sort of being moved, billions of dollars right now, could be tens of billions, could be hundreds of billions, could be trillions in the future. Uh, and we're not really paying attention to how it's going. And there are ways in which we know from the first few reports 
that the Fed is is preferencing certain industries over others, certain size industries over others. And uh, we need to get a handle on that. So, yeah, it's a terrible precedent uh, to uh, uh, to do this. And remember, this was uh, the Democrats. Uh, this was their big get, they said, in uh, the CARES Act. They said, uh, we are going to do uh, extreme oversight. We're going to figure out where this money is going. Uh, don't you worry about it. And five months later, we still don't have uh, a chair of the main committee. Right. You know, there's an opportunity, certainly within the legislation for uh, lawmakers to pick winners and losers. You talked about the municipal lending facility. I think one of the reasons it hasn't been used is because they're still sorting through how do you make those loans in a way that's not preferential to certain states or certain local governments? Um, yeah. So, yeah, you, you want to elaborate on that? Well, uh, I mean, uh, just by the very nature of the initial Federal Reserve uh, uh, rules on the MLF, uh, it left out, I think, 97% of the states and cities that uh, were able uh, to be eligible for, for the loans. Uh, in large part, it hasn't been used because uh, it's actually more expensive than it would be to use the regular market. And that makes it a non-functional kind of system. Uh, you know, obviously, it would be better to use fiscal policy uh, to, to support state and local governments who have had this tremendous revenue shortfall. Uh, uh, however... Um, if fiscal policy is left wanting and we still don't have any certainty uh, about whether the, 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 they will step in to backstop states and cities, the Fed has options uh, to, to come up with ways, creative ways, to support these businesses so we don't get in a situation like we did after 2008 when the austerity at the state and local level offset the spending at the federal level and put us right back to square one. That's the scenario. We know it happened. We had happened last time and we're headed right down that road again. So this is sort of a macro question. We have all these forces like globalization, like technology that are depressing wage growth in the United States. And this is a 30, 40 year problem, as you talked about. And at the same time, you have these monopolies that are uh, destroying jobs and, and destroying small businesses. How much of this would be solved by breaking up monopolies and creating sort of free market competition? And how much do we need sort of energetic government enterprise to fill the gaps in places like the healthcare industry uh, to make things more affordable for Americans? You know, at the same time that wages are falling or wage growth is falling, at least you have healthcare costs increasing, access to education more uneven. So how much do we need energetic government to step in and fill some of the gaps here? I think this is a big enough problem that it's an all hands on deck moment. Uh, I don't think you can say that there's a silver bullet here or there. Uh, it's not one thing that's going to help us through. Uh, uh, obviously, I think stronger merger policy is incumbent upon us uh, to get to a situation where companies just don't get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so that's a, that's a piece of the puzzle. Uh, a stronger fiscal intervention uh, is certainly going to be needed in the short term. Uh, I think uh, the, the nature of our healthcare system robs our competitiveness. Uh, it makes businesses responsible. What, what, what's the story that uh, uh, Ford Motor Company spends more on healthcare than steel? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it, this is a, a global competitiveness problem as much as it is uh, anything else. And, 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 you know, and some, some would say it's a moral problem to have uh, your, your, your well-being and your health tied to your job or whether you have a, a store of personal wealth. So uh, I, I think you need to do, uh, you need to work on a number of different fronts. 
but Congress needs to get involved again in these issues. I mean, we had a long period of sort of uh, letting the market sort of dictate uh, what uh, the outcomes would be. And uh, it's led us to the place that we're in now. And uh, I think the pandemic was an eye-opening moment for that. I mean, uh, we saw that the free market wasn't available to take care of a situation when we had massive needs uh, and the supply chains were all the way over in China and we couldn't make you know, a piece of cloth with two strings tied around it right away. Um, uh, you know, this, this has, has been a moment that has exposed some of the fault lines in the way that the economy runs right now, uh, both through monopoly and through other factors. Um, and uh, I think that now that we have seen the effects of this, it's incumbent upon us uh, to do something about it. So we have a, a business uh, contact. His name is Winston Ma. He used to work for the China Investment Corporation, which is the large uh, sovereign wealth fund of China. And he wrote a great book a few years ago about the mobile economy in China, how they've invested heavily in building out this mobile first economy. And in a uh, communist regime, they're able to then harvest all that data that's driven from a mobile first society to make advancements in things like AI and other industries. And Part of the reason they've been able to do that is because they've subsidized heavily some of the tech giants in their country, uh, like a Tencent who developed WeChat, which is probably the most powerful app in the world. It's sort of come on the radar of American, normal Americans because of uh, Trump's recent actions to try to ban it in the United States. But how do we compete in the United States against someone like China who is actively you know, engaging, I guess you could call it fiscal policy or heavy handedness in, in terms of driving innovation in areas are that important? And, and what advantages does the American system present versus the Chinese system? And how do we compete over the next 10, 20 years with China in that regard? Well, it's mercantilism. I mean, that, that's what China is engaged in. And, and in, in the tech sphere, it's actually very dangerous. It's a surveillance society. Not that we don't have one here. It's just being done by private interests rather than by the government itself. Um, uh, I, I think uh, to take your question in maybe a different direction, uh, you know, uh, one thing you're talking about is the preparation of an industrial policy and an infrastructure policy. So, uh, you know, I have a chapter in the book about broadband. Uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee has the fastest broadband in the United States and, and, and maybe the fastest in the world. Uh, and it's done through a public utility that brings fiber optic directly to the home. Uh, it's a Tennessee Valley Authority public utility in, in, in Chattanooga. And it's created this tremendous amount of opportunity. Not, not don't, only is it super fast internet, 10 gig uh, per second, but uh, it's created an industry around 3D printing in, uh, in, in uh, Chattanooga. It's created incubators for more tech policy and, and, and tech businesses. It's created uh, new options for telehealth even before the pandemic. It's created uh, education options and things like that. And if you go three minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, you have dial-up and you have kids who are sent to Starbucks parking lots to catch Wi-Fi to do their homework every night. And the reason that that, that dichotomy is there is because the, the, the monopolist uh, telecommunications companies, AT&T and Comcast, got their buddies in the legislature in Tennessee to pass a law that says public utilities can only do this kind of municipal broadband uh, through the edge of their service area. So even if cities outside Chattanooga want the service, they are not allowed to get it by law. Uh, that is absolutely backwards. 
uh, it, we have the opportunity uh, and we obviously have the technology and the ability to create something like Chattanooga in practically every city in America, but we don't do it because uh, investor-owned utilities and large telecommunication firms don't want it to happen. And uh, you know, a, a, a forward-thinking country would see the example of Chattanooga and say, this is something that we can do, and it wouldn't really cost that much because it's, it's brought back more for the Chattanooga public utility than it has been in paying out. Uh, we can do this across the country. We can build sort of a national network uh, that is the completely wired. And, and that's the kind of thinking that uh, we do not do in the United States. And, and, and maybe uh, future administrations will figure it out. But uh, I think that's a perfect example of the kind of thing you're talking about, which is really a forward thinking way of looking at this, this, this issue. Yeah, you, you might have taken it in a little bit of a different direction, but it's a big theme in Winston's book that I mentioned is China's investment in that broadband infrastructure that continues with 5G and all of the uh, ancillary benefits of that uh, within the society, their ability to build out their AI systems, gather data and incubate uh, technology companies. Uh, so you, you talked earlier about the fact that uh, you tried to write this book not as a left or a right book, but as something that uh, you hope to unite people in terms of building more equitable legislation around monopolies and, and understanding the impact on small businesses of some of these forces that have been in place for 30 years. How optimistic are you that that process is going to take place? How much of it is driven, you know, the lack of action is driven by special interests and money in politics? And what do you think the path is to you know, really meaningful action in terms of regulating some of these monopolies and, and creating more competition in our economy? Well, a lot of it is driven by, by money and politics. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, economic power converts into political power. And we see this across the board, whether it's through campaign donations or lobbying uh, or, or, you know, uh, the revolving door of people coming from industry into the government. Um, so, uh, you know, am I optimistic? I mean, I think what makes me hopeful in doing this book is, you know, I was able to travel around back when we could do that and uh, go uh, to talk to people all over the country, Iowa, Tennessee, California, New York, Ohio, North Carolina, where have you. And I did see a lot of commonality of experience. As I said, they couldn't say, you know, what percentage market share a certain airline had or what, you know, things like that. But they all had a sense that there was this problem with the economy, that this problem with companies taking up more and more space in their lives and affecting their lives in larger and larger ways. And uh, they, they all sort of got it in that sense. And, and when you have sort of a, 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 an understanding, a commonality of understanding, which is rare in our sort of tribalized, uh, polarized uh, political and, and social environments, uh, uh, when you have that, you have the basis for something that, that can lead to action. And so the, the thing that we don't have is, a, is political will, and I think political will can be uh, brought along by movements. So one of the things in the last chapter of the book that I talk about is the situation in Israel. Israel was even more concentrated than the United States. They have these tycoons and interlocking directorates. Uh, that uh, controlled large segments of, of Israeli society. Uh, there was a social movement, actually started through a journalistic enterprise. Uh, it led to mass action on the streets. 
well beyond anything we've seen in the United States. Uh, uh, and it led to the dismantling of these uh, large concentrated industries such that, for example, uh, cell phones were extremely concentrated in Israel. And after the anti-concentration law that was passed by the Knesset, uh, you now have prices for cell phones that are 90% below what they were originally. Um, so uh, I, I think it takes a movement. There was a famous uh, uh, a paper written by Richard Hofstetter called Whatever Happened to the Antitrust Movement. This was written in the 1950s, 1960s where it talked about how first there was the movement and no policy, and now there was policy and no movement. Everyone got comfortable. They thought that the antitrust enforcers were doing a good job and they could sort of be left to their own devices. Within 20 years, uh, uh, you know, those, those laws were changed sort of without, without changing a word of the law, they were just reinterpreted. Uh, and we had no movement and no policy. And so I think the way to get that back is through uh, uh, you know, grassroots mobilization uh, and, and, and getting people interested in this topic and, and, and forcing the political system to act. Well, a grassroots movement triggered by a journalistic outlet uh, educating people on the problem. That, that imagine sounds, that. Imagine sounds that. like something you might, you might be at the middle of, hopefully, over the next uh, several years. Uh, I'm going to leave it to Anthony for one final word. It's fascinating, the book. I would recommend it to everybody, Monopolized. Uh, Anthony, you have a final word for David? But just th David, thank you for coming on, and uh, we hope we can catch up with you after the election uh, yeah. to talk about potentiality of policy that could come out of a, a great book like this. But I do agree with what John said. It is a post-partisan book. It's actually uh, regaling back to an earlier time in the American society uh, where our public politicians were trying to make things fairer and evening up the playing field. And so to me, as somewhat of a libertarian, I think it's a, uh, it's a bipartisan book. It should be read by everybody. Thank you so much for joining.